from Washington, D.C., this is Trade Geek Podcast with your host, Pete Mento. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mento LLC. Mento LLC Trade Consulting focuses on issues of duty minimization, recovery, and elimination, while also helping our clients with trade compliance issues of both the import and export nature and global cargo security. You can reach us at 978-317-3250 or email me directly at pete.mento at Mento LLC. Alba Wheels Up is on a mission to be the best freight forwarder and customs house broker on the market. Our expert knowledge and experience provides the perfect solution for your freight forwarding needs. When you know more, your clients do better. Alba Wheels Up, success delivered. To learn more, visit us at albawheelsup.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Undeniable Technologies, constructing the backbone to global trade based on the standards of the world's largest trade organization, the Known Alliance. Undeniable is making global commerce faster, safer, more secure, and easier than ever before. Learn more at undeniable.net. Well, shockingly enough... Our trip through history last week was very well received. So you know what that means. I'm going to do it again. I, I am nothing if not shameless when it comes to giving the people what they like. So if we're going to have to talk about e-commerce and how to fix it, well, we got to talk about e-commerce, folks. So a quick timeline on e-commerce. And I ended up finding this topic down right fascinating. Okay. So 1969, that's right. We have to go back to 1969 to figure out exactly how people went from buying practically everything from their Sears Roebuck and L.L. Bean catalogs to where we are today. And while I'm on that topic, why am I still getting catalogs in the mail? Why? Why is it that when I go downstairs to my mailbox, it is still jam-packed with gigantic um, bound pieces of dead tree trying to sell me new parts for my Jeep. Why, people? Why? All right. 1969, CompuServe. CompuServe is founded. So some cat uh, founds CompuServe. It's an engineering student named Dr. John Goltz and another cat named Jeffrey Wilkins. Early CompuServe technology was built using uh, dial-up connections. <laughs> That's a sound I don't miss. In the 80s, CompuServe introduced some of the earliest types of email and internet connectivity. Um, you know, that's when people were able to buy it, pick up on it and use it. And um, that's really what folks were using in the early 1990s was that whole dial-up thing. I had an AOL account. I sure did. I wonder if you did too. 1979, Michael Aldrich invents electronic shopping, e-shopping. So Michael Aldrich introduces electronic shopping by connecting a modified television 
to a transaction processing computer via a telephone line. It made it possible for closed information systems to be opened and shared by outside parties. It also allowed for secure data transmissions. Now, pretty darn secure at seeing how it's going from one transmission line through a TV to the payment system. So it became the foundation for modern e-commerce. Think about that, 1979 to today, the only thing that's really different is it's going through a cloud, but it's still the same basic idea. 82, Boston Computer Exchange launches. It was the world's first e-commerce company, 1982. 1982, almost 40 years ago. That is bananas. Its real function is to serve as an online market for people interested in selling their used computers. Uh, apparently, that was a big deal. Um, I mean, think about it, right? If you've got a computer and you want to get another computer, you've got a computer to do the search for a new computer on. Pretty smart. But if you wanted a computer, you probably didn't have a computer. That apparently was one of the downfalls of the company. 92, Bookstacks Unlimited launches as the first online book marketplace. No, it was not Jeff Bezos. Charles M. Stack introduces Bookstacks Unlimited, hence the name Stacks. Online bookstore. Originally, the company used the dial-up bulletin board format. I guess a lot of companies ended up doing that after him. But in 894, the site switched back to the internet and operated from the books.com domain. Now things get interesting because in 94, Netscape Navigator launches as a web browser. Oh, kids, you have no idea the pain and suffering one had to go through using these old school browsers. I use Netscape. I remember it. Mark Andresen and Jim Clark co-created Netscape Navigator. It was a web browsing tool. And during the 90s, Netscape Navigator became the primary web browser, baby. It was on the Windows platform. I remember going to the uh, Harvard Library, Widener Library. They had a bunch of, uh, you know, big um, computers there that we could use. And it was uh, pretty much the only way you could use the internet was on Netscape. And that's how you searched for everything. And that was before Google. That was pre-Google. 95, man, this is the start of pretty much everything you know about e-commerce for most of you. And that's when Amazon launches, 1995. Jeff Bezos introduces Amazon as the primary e-commerce platform for books. And I can still remember, I was driving home from class in my 1985 Ford Thunderbird jet black with the tan interior. The driver's seat was broken. It would flop back if not for the fact that my spare tire was behind it, holding it up. That's how broke I was, folks, when I went to Harvard. I had no money. Um, it was also filled with half-full Diet Dr. Pepper bottles. Um, I had a kick-ass stereo system, though. And I was driving home listening to NPR, and they were interviewing him. And I thought to myself, what a dumbass. Yep, that's what I thought to myself. Boy, was I wrong. Brilliant, brilliant decision. And they have made just all the right moves ever since then. Amazon will soon be the world's single largest employer. Um, 1998, PayPal launches as an e-commerce payment system. I remember this one very well when it happened. It was originally introduced as Confinity. Do you remember that name? I remember reading about that in the Journal of Commerce. And the, um, the um, founders, very, very rich people, Max Levin and Peter Thiel. Um, like Nasik and Ken Howery, PayPal made its appearance on the e-commerce stage as a money transfer, monetary transfer tool. The idea was for we've been looking for some ways to 
brilliantly be able to move money more easily from one person to another without using banks, without um, necessarily putting credit cards in the middle of it. Eventually, that's what ends up happening anyway. But this became the clearinghouse for currencies. And uh, they just cleaned up. You know, by 2000, it's going to merge with Elon Musk for an online banking company and just begins to rise in fame and popularity. PayPal is slowly with Venmo becoming especially amongst millennials and Gen Y, it's becoming sort of the, the way that people pay for practically everything, especially between each other. 99, you begin to get that sort of international flavor to this with Alibaba's launch. Uh, it's an online marketplace, a true marketplace, less of a retailer in a marketplace with more than 25 million in funding in 99 alone. By 2001, the company was already profitable. Just incredible. It went on to turn into a major B2B, C2C, and B2C platform. And it's incredibly widely used today. It truly is a rival to Amazon. They're, um, you know, they've got their own problems that they have to deal with from a supply chain perspective, but it's a mistake to consider them a identical company to Amazon. They are more of a marketplace where buyers and sellers come rather than a retail means to an end. And we'll see which one of these is the more dominant as years to come. And they, they do both borrow ideas from each other. Um, I'm an American, so I think you both know whose horse I'm backing. In 2000, Google introduces Google AdWords as an online advertising tool. Did a lot of research on this one. Um, Google AdWords is introduced as a way for e-commerce businesses to advertise to people using Google search, and it changes everything. With the help of short text ad copy, it's gonna display URLs online to retailers and it begins using the tool in pay-per-click context. So PPC advertising or pay-per-click advertising efforts are separate from search engine optimizations. And it really starts driving how people are sold to. It's one of those reasons why it just seems like the people know what you're looking for when you turn on your phone before you even realize what you were looking for. In 2004, Shopify launches. And if you have not been watching the rise of Shopify, you really need to be. Shopify is a platform that really enables e-commerce for you know, just about everything. After, you know, after trying to open a, an online snowboarding equipment shop, Tobias Lutke and Scott Lake launched this concept of Shopify. And the platform allows online stores and point of sale systems. So imagine, if you will, you're a small company who doesn't know how to break into e-commerce. These guys, they created a platform that allows you to do that and allows other companies to offer their electronic and electric systems and solutions in one place to help to accelerate that growth for you electronically. Prime is introduced in 2005. And it's a way for customers to get free two-day shipping for a flat annual fee. So rather than worrying about how fast you want something and maybe not buying it online because you don't want to pay for it, Amazon says, you know what, we're going to get people to just pay for it up front as a subscription service. We'll figure out the shipping on our own because we should be able to leverage our size and our sales to get this done. And, you know, it includes all kinds of other perks if you're a Prime member, discounted one-day shipping access, Prime Day, which is ridiculous at this point. You know, we all go a little gaga. For, I know I go nuts. I shouldn't say we all go nuts. I I need a 12-step program for my addiction to Prime Day. Um, I get very giddy for it. I actually think of things I want throughout the year, and I hope that I hit on them on Prime Day. I know I'm sick. I need help. Uh, it was a strategic move, and it helped boost customer loyalty and incentivize repeat purchases. It, it's... Um, it's free shipping and speed of delivery are the most common requests from online customers today. If you, if you were to open an e-commerce business now, the things that Amazon ended up 
really pioneering with the concept of Prime are what everybody really wants these days. Also in 05, you've got the launch of Etsy. It allowed crafters, smaller sellers, uh, people who are more boutique to get involved. It created a community online. And you're going to see more and more of this as, as you get to, to look more, I guess, more granularly at the way that e-commerce is evolving, where you're seeing these smaller, more communally based e-commerce platforms. So watch that space closely. 2009, big commerce launches. Uh, Eddie Makalani and Mitchell Harper, they co-found Big Commerce as a 100% bootstrapped e-commerce storefront platform. So since 2009, more than 25 billion merchant sales have been processed through that platform. And the company now is headquarters in Austin, San Francisco, and Sydney. What a success story. Now, 2011, very controversial concept. 2011, Google Wallet is introduced as a digital payment method. Still not comfortable with it. Um, I'm still the guy that has a hard time with my Apple Pay, but I'm old and bald and pointless. I'm just a dithering idiot. But uh, let me tell you, the youngsters love this stuff. It was introduced as a peer-to-peer -peer payment service that enabled individuals to send and receive money from a mobile device or desktop computer. Think Venmo, think Zelle. This is the you know wave of the future. When I go to China, everywhere I go, people are sending money to each other electronically. Um, you know, maybe the libertarian to me just doesn't like the idea of everyone being able to see that, that digital transfer. 2011, Facebook rolls out sponsored stories as a form of early advertising. So these early advertising opportunities were offered to business pages, owners via sponsored stories, starts to just rack up cash out of it. 2011, Stripe launches. If you've ever bought something from someone's phone using Stripe, you know how convenient it is. Um, not as convenient, of course, as maybe using um, Venmo or something, but very convenient. My daughter selling Girl Scout cookies. They use the Stripe app to do it. it makes it a lot easier. Um, Apple Pay, 2014. I think I've already talked enough about that. Jet.com, 2014. Mark Lore, you know, the guy did diapers.com to amazon.com. This him with the guy named Mike Hanrahan and Nate Faust. They compete with Costco and Sam's Club, catering to folks looking for the lowest possible pricing for longer shipping times and bulk ordering. Dude, I love this idea. I had this friend of mine named Scott Demers. I called him Crazy Scott. The guy is a genius, though. We used to always say we were going to order a freight forwarding company that specialized in door-to-door -door air freight called Better Late Than Never. Better Late Than Never freight forwarding. Give us what you want. Tell us where it needs to go. We'll get it there when it gets there. We're going to call it Better Late Than Never or Slow Boat to China Forwarding. And it was going to be 250 door to door. Any destination to any destination. But don't ask us when it's getting there. No, no, um, no track and trace. No, no electronic uh, tracking. No. When's it going to get there? When it gets there. How will we know where it is? You, you won't. We're just going to take, we're going to take possession of it and it'll get there when it gets there. And when it gets there, um, you'll get a text message that says, surprise, here's your freight. Yeah, that I didn't go anywhere. 2017, shoppable Instagram is introduced. That was massive, you know, um, being able to click off of Instagram to go directly to a purchase site. This has become a, a huge part of e-commerce. I tell the story in my Instagram about when I bought my I pity the fool BA Baracus t-shirt because I, I was watching I was watching the A-team on um, Netflix, I believe. Instagram knew that because of my Google account and sent me, no, it wasn't Instagram, it was Facebook, sent me to a, um, sent me to a website to buy the t-shirt. I was just blown away.
2017, Cyber Monday exceeded 6.5, Cyber Monday exceeded $6.5 billion in sales. Then of course, 2020, what we had with uh, the e-commerce growth, it just went absolutely nuts. And with that, we also have the rise of the concept of de minimis and the use of de minimis as the driving force of so many companies, of just a, uh, a massive number of companies looking to use the um, you know, de minimis exception of $800 or less to import goods into the United States duty-free um, many times at the source of production in order to avoid paying tariffs and avoid double, triple, quadruple handling prior to its arrival to the U.S. end user. And where we are today, where the growth of e-commerce, the growth of these smaller, more boutique sellers, and the desire of Americans to buy something directly, not go to retail stores, as we as you know, point-of-sale consumers are doing more and more of our purchasing over a screen and less of it as we walk around and browse, are really just gumming up the works. We're gumming up transportation and logistics, we're gumming up small package, and we're gumming up customs, who really has not been, you know, unlike my last podcast, they haven't been very good. Uh, customs has not been very good about finding ways to work more closely with us to make this better. So this pandemic fuel surged madness that we find ourselves in right now, you know, even post that pandemic, as things are getting better, we got a way to find a way to fix it. And as I said during the, the first podcast of this year, you know, the Trade Geek podcast for this fourth season is about thinking about smart ways to fix it. And that's what we're going to get to after we take this short break on the Trade Geek podcast. So stick around. Welcome back to the Trade Geek podcast. I am Pete Mento, your Trade Geek, coming at you live. Uh, for what is going to be a topic that is so sticky and so difficult, but is so easily fixed. Oh yeah. Yeah, you heard me say it. It's so easily fixed, but probably never will be. Ah, man, don't you hate it when I get all, I get all uh, negative on you right off the bat? Well, if you, know, if you listen to the intro to the podcast this week, you know that we're in a bit of a pickle here. And the pickle is that there had been what was probably a nice, healthy, slow burn toward e-commerce over the past couple of years. And I think that has a lot to do with, with a couple of things. First, the companies who were really pushing us toward e-commerce were doing it in a way that I truly believe was systematic. They were pushing us as global consumers at a pace that really suited them quite well. And I don't, I don't know I don't, I don't, gosh, I wish I knew this. I don't know if they were doing it on purpose because it was what was best for them. I like to think that they were. I like to think that the, you know, the massive global retailers of the world, the Nikes of the world, the, the Nordstrom's of the world, the Walmarts of the world, the Amazons, the Alibabas, that they were, they were pushing us as hard as they could handle it, that they weren't trying to dump more e-commerce on, on us than we could as a group handle. And I, I like to think that they weren't going to fall in that old Mark Cuban line, you know, that um, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. And that when COVID came and really surprised all of us uh, and then turned our whole world on its head, that they had to, they just had to deal, you know, like every other industry, every other family and person and country 
they just had to cope. Um, and with that, they, you know, come on, they were in an op opportunistic place. They, what are they going to do? Say no to this incredible opportunity to shift with the changing marketplace where global attitudes about e-commerce changed because they had to change. They had to change. You know, we didn't have a choice. I, I remember full well when the pandemic first started, I didn't know how bad it was going to be. You know, I got COVID. I've told you guys, I was awful sick. But when, when, the, when the pandemic first started, way before anybody was, was telling folks to wear masks, I would get up early in the morning. And, you know, our, our Walmart here in, in New Hampshire, it opened up at 6 a.m. And I would drive out there at about 5.40. I'd get in my car and I'd drive out there and I'd, I'd wait in line for the doors to open and I'd, I'd rush out and get toilet paper and hand sanitizer and meat, you know, whatever I needed before it sold out. And I'd head home and I'd have a mask on. And it was scary and creepy. And then, you know, then I realized I should order what I can order online. And then I started using the Whole Foods app and my local grocery stores app to get things delivered. And, you know, and then I'll admit I got a little more brazen and cavalier as time went by. But one thing that hasn't changed is when I stopped going to retail, man, I stopped going to retail altogether. And, and where I can, I am, I've become a real convert to online shopping. And that's not to say that I wasn't before. I was at a meeting in Vietnam while I was at Crane and I bought a television for my bedroom back in Virginia uh, from a meeting during a break. Like I, I remember I was in a conference room during a break on the Best Buy website, buying a television that, I mean, it was probably made in Vietnam for all I know, from the Best Buy. I paid for it with my credit card on my phone there in Ho Chi Minh City. And I did uh, buy online, pick up in store. And I had my, you know, the, the woman I was seeing at the time, the next day, go pick it up in my pickup. And I arranged for all that on the other side of the world. And, and I remember that night I was at a bar with, um, you know, one of my friends that I worked with at the time. And I said that just, and I, you know, I did it and it just felt normal. Like, what's the big deal? But if you would have told me that I would have done that as a matter of course, when I was, you know, 17 or 18 years old, I would have said, wow, what a time to be alive, you know, what else can I order that way? You know, and practically anything, dude, you know, you've got a girlfriend. That's probably the scariest news of all. Um, you know, the, the, the desire of Americans to buy things has, has, has then shifted even farther towards that scale of, of massive because we're at that point now where we've gotten so used to it while at the same time, we've also gotten used to a certain level of service. So where the Amazons of the world have been successful is, is they've made us feel confident that it's not unrealistic to expect practically whatever our heart desires in two days of ordering it. If I order it today, I should expect it in two days and that should be reasonable and it should also be reasonable 
that I should get that sent to me and not have to pay for shipping, that the shipping should be something that is included in the price of that purchase. Okay. Now also, there has been a consumer expectation that I'm willing to wait as long as I have to wait for things as well. If that never comes up in the discussion, how often have you bought something online from what is clearly a foreign seller? I mean, we all know it, you know, whatever, whatever no one says, you know, it will arrive to you on this day. If you click here, it'll arrive to you on this day. If you click here, it'll come here tomorrow. If you click this type of shipping, and that is, that is hit number one, that this thing is coming to you from a warehouse somewhere in Guangdong. Right. Um, but we're okay with that as consumers. We know it might take a month to get here. And that's because, you know, for those of us who are in the business, we understand that they are using a, a now, um, you know, relatively widely considered, although not widely used, but widely considered customs um, concept called de minimis to get it here. And that widely used concept is really gumming up the works of international trade. The de minimis concept, the 321 concept, the section entry concept is very simple. There are shipments of a certain size that come into the country that are inconsequential. They are small. And customs entries exist for some simple reasons. The first is to gather trade statistics of note so that we understand what's coming in, how much it's valued at, so that we can gather those statistics to negotiate trade agreements with other countries. Okay. Another reason is so that we can gather those statistics and understand where there might be a need for enforcement because those harmonized tariff numbers or the descriptions or the value of the goods or who it's coming from or who it's going to or other necessary data. Well, that tells us a little something that may tip off customs or one of its associated government agencies. Hey, we should pull this aside and take a look at it. And the third reason is because customs is a revenue generating government organization and that data allows them to understand if what they're importing requires them to have a revenue generating moment. All right, there you go. So these are the reasons that we do these customs entries. Well, for a long, long time, customs was of the opinion that if something is just inconsequential, if it's small, we should have a section of the regulations, a section of the entry concept that says, we're just gonna have an easier way of dealing with it because these data points are just not important enough for us to really, you know, care about. We care, we care. We're going to gather data about them in case that there's something we need to understand down the road. We're going to gather information about them in case there's something we want to immediately look at. We're certainly not going to just ignore them, but we're not going to put the same amount of, of, of scrutiny on them that we would our normal con consumption entries. And also there needs to be a way to expediently get these through uh, because, you know, it's consumerism just the way it is. And these section entries involved with de minimis, you know, they, one of the last gifts that Obama gave the trade was this, this trade act of 2016, where he greatly increased the opportunity for drawback. Um, you know, we have a five-year look back now. It, it was supposed to be simplified. I'm not really, you know, the jury's still out about whether or not it was or not. And, and then we have this change, this, this wholesale change to de minimis where it went from $200 threshold to $800 threshold. That's gigantic. That's just, I mean, it's massive. Most phones that people buy in America are over $1,000 now, the new ones. But, you know, the, if you're going to buy the, the, the real, you know, 
humdinger ones. But under that, you can buy a beautiful iPhone for less than a thousand bucks. Buy 600, 500. You buy a refurbished iPhone 10 for 350 bucks and have that sent to you directly from China under de minimis. You can buy a really nice laptop for about 400 bucks and you can have that sent to your home under de minimis. Not that I think you would save any money on duties, but imagine that sent directly from the producer overseas to the US. And there's a lot of challenges that come with this in the supply chain world. You know, one of the first is if you're gonna do it right for e-commerce fulfillment, you probably wanna use air freight. Well, air freight's expensive and you need to have a sale of a certain price to make that worth your while. So that can get sticky. So then how do we do it via ocean freight? Well, you can do it via ocean freight and have it sent directly to the US port. If it's already destined to the US you know, buyer, that's the whole point, right? So you, you send it in an ocean container where everybody's stuff is already clearly destined for the US buyer. Well, the issue there is it takes a long, long time to get it across the ocean. Hence these long waits that we have where you buy something and then three weeks, four weeks later, it finally gets to you here. And the small package companies to, to a degree, you know, they're getting more money from this because a lot of the 321 companies that specialize in this, these brokers that specialize in it, they're using small package companies to do the final mile. So that first mile to the foreign warehouse, uh, who knows who's doing that for some of these companies, it'd be small couriers, it'd be the company themselves, who knows? And then that final mile, they're using these, these um, small package couriers to get it over to them in a day or two or three. In many cases, they're using USPS to do it as well. Um, but with ocean, you got to wait a, while, a long time. The other way you can do it, of course, is you open a warehouse in Mexico and you stage inventory there. Someone buys from you on an e-commerce platform and then you send it from Mexico to the United States, clearly destined for that consumer because that then will qualify for de minimis because it's a foreign sale, clearly destined for the US importer done the day prior and it's under the threshold for de minimis. So you avoid paying the duties and the taxes on it. All right, well, all this is great. And a lot of it is academic as companies are, are getting better and better at doing it. And, you know, we're all, we're all fired up about it, but there's one organization that is not fired up about it. As a matter of fact, they are, they are pretty frustrated with the whole thing and that's Customs and Border Protection. And the reason they're frustrated with all of it is their system is built to do this, but it's not built to do it at the gargantuan you know, cataclysmic volumes that they have to deal with right now. I mean, it, it, I'll admit, you know, I'm one of those people who's to blame for this. I see something like this and I'm like, bring it on. This is the greatest thing ever. Man, we should have been doing this for years. What were we thinking? You add the 301 tariffs on some of this stuff. There are people who have 40% tariff rates on their goods and there's no profit left once you get rid of that. So you know, they, they do this as, as a means of survival. So you have these, these, these entries where you know, you're putting 20, 30, 40,000 line entries and SKUs and all the rest of it through, through the ACE portal. And ACE just says, you know, no moss. They're tapping out like a UFC fighter with their leg going backwards. Because the system just isn't ready for it. So you have, you have to do it in bundles. And the, there's an easier way to handle this. And I'm all about solutions, but customs already said no to it. The easiest way to handle this, and it's absolutely in the best interest of everyone, is to allow us to do order fulfillment for de minimis out of foreign trade zones. 
There, I said it. I said it. I said it for you, everybody. Now, Customs already gave us the, the, the stiff arm on it. They already gave us the Heisman. They didn't like this idea. But the idea is very simple. We stage inventory in foreign trade zones. There you go. Now, granted, it doesn't help with the 301 problem, but hopefully 301 tariffs go away eventually. But you stage your inventory in a foreign trade zone and you fulfill e-commerce out of the foreign trade zone. And you don't pay duties on it when it comes out of it if it's under de minimis. Ta-da! Why can't we come up with a regulatory way to do this where we, we work with customs directly? This seems to be the simplest way to do this. Customs, you know, they're probably not going to like it because it's going to it's going to affect revenue. But but here's the thing: we have a choice to make. We can have these warehouse jobs and we can have these distribution jobs all sourced in China because that's what's going to happen. Or we can continue to distribute and source retail out of the U.S. Or it can go to Mexico and China in a hybrid model. Because I talk to people every day about this. And they're like, wow, you mean I could move all my distribution to Mexico where it's infinitely cheaper and I could get this stuff delivered in maybe a day or two and I don't pay any tariffs on it? I'm like, yeah. Wow. How do I do it? And I'm like, oh, have a seat, sign a contract and let's party. Well, can I still do this from the United States? I'm afraid not. Not easily. There's a way we can do it as a hybrid model out of China, but you can't keep the inventory and deliver it in the next day. Oh, well, that sucks. Tell me about it, bro. Why can't we do it from a foreign trade zone? Because the way that the foreign trade zone was, was built, the reason it was built for, this is just a road too far. This is, this is pushing the reason it was created way, way too far out of the comfort zone of commerce and way too out of the comfort zone of customs we would have to get them to expand the reason it was built. Because then it's not about manufacturing. This is, I mean, this would be truly just for saving tariffs, saving duties and skipping out on taxes. And that's not why foreign trade zones, as much as people are using them, and let's just be honest, a lot of companies have a foreign trade zone solely because they don't want to pay tariffs. And that's not why they're supposed to have them. They're for a bigger purpose. They're for creating jobs. They're for you know, making sure that we can continue to manufacture in the United States and bring more value than that. This would truly just be a tax dodge to have something like this set up. We have to come up with a better way. You know, if you could domestically and internationally distribute out of the U.S. into Canada and Mexico from them, if it just, you know, means better things for IP, I don't know. But it certainly makes more sense to me than to do it the way we're doing now. And before someone says, well, if it doesn't help with 301s, what's the point? There are still so many tariffs out there that it is repugnant. It's repugnant. And we're about to have these carbon emission taxes that aren't going anywhere. As soon as a Biden administration can get affect them, he's going to put them into effect. So if you could have like a slow boat to China concept where we do, we do order fulfillment out of, out of China where someone doesn't mind waiting a while to get their product. But if you wanna have it as soon as possible and you're willing to pay transportation for it, and we did it out of an F foreign trade zone, I think that is a model that really answers a lot of questions about how we solve e-commerce and we make life easier for customs. They can inspect it before it leaves. It's always there. We have the inventory. 
And it also does something else that no one wants to talk about. And that, that is, it actually helps us a great deal with counterfeit merchandise. And a lot of that is coming into the country through these 321s, which again, nobody wants to admit to. So we want to do something about e-commerce and port congestion. Here's your first way to solve it. I'm not saying it's the best answer. I'm saying it's an answer. And at least it's a place to start. And from there, we can begin to start looking farther down the supply chain of a smarter way to deal with e-commerce. I don't know. I'm interested as always to hear what you think. And you know, also, if you have questions for the Trade Geek podcast, you can send them to me at pete.mento at mentollc.com. If I use your question on the air, you will, uh, you'll get an tr autographed Trade Geek podcast poster. I don't know why you people want them. You keep asking me for them. And I'll keep autographing them and sending them to you to put up in your cubicles or I don't know what you're doing. I'm just, I just assume you put these things in your bathrooms. Um, I, you know, I, I have absolutely no idea why people want these things, but good on you. Um, as always, thank you all for the support. Thank you for subscribing. Please subscribe, ask your friends to subscribe and uh, thank you for your support. Please support my um, organizations that are, being kind enough to advertise. If you or your company would like to advertise with us, please do reach out. And with that, we'll see you next week. I have a pretty cool guest coming on to talk about OCR and automation and trade and how maybe that can help us to speed things up and also deal with putting us into more of a paperless environment. All right, take it easy, geeks. We'll talk again soon.